listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Knapp. Yes, it's episode 74 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo. He is Thomas Neff. No Alexander Gongay-Ruzik for this episode. He is out doing quality journalism things out there at UBC. So it's just the two originals here. How are you, Neff? Everything well. Good. Uh, As we get uh, close to some Canadian championship, U20 action that we'll shortly talk about for the vast majority of the episode. And uh, things are looking more interesting as the women's national team plays as well uh, on the weekend, also in Toronto. Yes, lots of Canadian soccer on the docket this month. Um, A reminder to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. If you prefer Apple or Spotify, then leave us a rating and a review on Apple while you're at it and follow us on Twitter at Northern Football if you don't already do that. We'll of course begin with Monday's game at the CONCACAF U20 Championship between Canada and the US. Despite being heavy outshot, Canada came away with a 2-2 draw thanks to Lowell Wright and a second half own goal. That result leaves Canada in third place with one point through two games after losing 1-0 to Cuba on Saturday night. Canada faces St. Kitts and Nevis on Wednesday, but will likely finish third and take on either Honduras, the host, or Costa Rica in the round of 16 with the winner likely playing Mexico in the quarters. We understandably received a lot of questions about the U-20s, so let's dive in. Connor Johnston, do the issues we are seeing in the early games come down to coaching or tactical setup by CSA. Is it a chemistry thing or things players have to sort out further? We seem to be lacking going forward. I felt our wingers were useless compared to the men's national team. Is there a lack of U20 wingers? Similar question from Paul Anderson. Is the current play of the U20 more to do with the tactics and style the coach has the team playing or the talent on the team? And finally, Mark Lafarve. We need a better full-time U20 coach to take that next step, don't we? Yellow lineups and tactics. The first game were questionable at best and didn't adjust to Cuba. Peter, lots to dive into here. Let's not forget that I think we're both in agreement here that a lot of us, more than just ourselves and a lot of other fans, had a lot of expectations uh, with this team going forward not only because of the men's national team success, but also the fact that they're bringing in more European-based players than two, three years ago. There seemed to be more preparation as we saw the first ever friendlies of a new 20 team, you know, playing in March. Um, And so there was a lot of, you know, hype, but obviously the Cuba results and the fact that, yes, you did draw the U.S., but it is just one point. Uh, What do you make of all this? Yeah, that's the big question throughout this entire tournament so far for Canada is... Is it a talent issue or is it a coaching issue? Because if you look back to the under 23s last year and maybe the talent from back to front wasn't all there. Like I think they had pretty solid center backs. They had good attackers. The midfield was maybe a little lightweight on that under 23 squad, but still a decent amount of professional pedigree across the pitch. And just through a simple lack of familiarity and chemistry, that is what landed them in the situation they were in where they had to face Mexico in a do or die game to qualify for the Olympics. They didn't do it, understandably so. 
And everyone was looking at that and thinking, well, Biello made some very weird tactical decisions, kept insisting on playing from the back when he doesn't really have the personnel to do it, benching Lukas Dias for as long as he did when he very clearly looked like he could inject some sort of improv improvisation into that team. And you see similar things with the under-20s. As I wrote after I rewatched, or I guess watched, the Cuba game, having missed it live, when I saw the 11, I thought to myself, that's a midfield that doesn't have a lot of creativity in it, and you're probably going to end up a little bit in the lurch, let's say. And that's exactly what happened. They didn't look like they were on the same page, the entire team, that is, apart from some left-sided combinations against Cuba between, what was it, Henry Poku and Catavolo, there was really nothing in terms of ball progression into the final third. And when the ball got to the final third, there was very little clear-cut chances, little creativity, anything of the sort. And we saw the same thing against the U.S. The difference being, Canada, I think, had the excuse of, okay, we're going to sit back here, we're going to see the initiative, and just make the U.S. break us down. And then when we can, counter down the flanks through Franklin and Poku, get Lowell Wright dropping deep, maybe spread the ball around a little bit. And none of that really happened. Because even off the ball, sure, there were some good shifts put in by Justin Smith. Rita Zuhir had some moments. I thought Gabriel Pellegrino had a better game than he did in the first game. Certainly off the ball, he did. But overall, Canada was overrun the entire game against the U.S. They put up 2.6 expected goals, the U.S., and were probably unfortunate not to score three or four when you look at the quality of the chances they were producing on the regular. And they just looked disjointed, Canada. They didn't know how to handle the quick give-and-goes from the U.S. The U.S. looked faster. Um, so I think part of it is a little bit to do with lack of familiarity. And I think the other side of it, too, is tactical because I would have thought Biello would have gone 3-5-2 from the start, to be honest with you. Just given that the center backs aren't the, the quickest when it comes to acceleration, you have very dynamic wing backs led by Poku and Franklin. Even Noah Abatne, I think, is, is a pretty good attack-minded wing back. We didn't see that in the Cuba game, but regardless... And then you don't have a very creative midfield, so you can rely on the flanks and your strikers, whether that's Habibula, Wright. It's really a combination of both of those things. I don't think Biello is the coach who is going to unlock a lot of the attacking potential on this team. But when it comes to the organization, when it comes to managing games, you may be expected a bit more, but there are certain tactical things, which we're going to get into later on because people did ask specific things, that just leave me scratching my head a little bit. And on Connor's question about the lack of under-20 wingers or, you know, just in terms of whether the wingers were useless compared to the senior team, there are quite a few wingers in this under-20 player pool. That's what's surprising to me here. Um, I mean, you just look past the likes of Jean-Yaniel Assi, Jesse Costa, Cam Habibula. Um, there were guys who didn't make the squad who can also do a job as a winger. I mean, Matthew Catavolo, we saw him on the left against Cuba, although I don't necessarily like him as a winger. I like him kind of playing in that more free role. Um, you have Georgi Atanasov, who, by the way, is playing professionally. So he would have been a really good addition to, to have on the team. Um, Antoine Coupland can play on the wing, although I don't know if he maybe would have added a whole lot more than what we see. Lukas Diaz, if he wanted to have come, 
can also play on the wing as well. Um, so like those are just the names off the top of my head. Ronan Kratt, Luca Koliosho. Like the the names are just kind of coming to me as I as I kind of think about it. And even Jaquiel Marshall Ruddy, too, who's obviously hurt. So it's not really a lack of options. I just think that they haven't been given the the right setup or the right situation to really I guess explode and it's weird because when you look at the April matches based on what I was told at least a lot of the players playing on the wing mainly Costin Habibula apparently impressed so how does it go from that to when you're going into a competitive setting on a less than stellar pitch yes and you're playing every other day but how does it go from that to suddenly they can't look like they can get out of each other's way Continuing now with the list of questions, Dan Clark, big picture, how worried should we be that the U20s look like luster? Eventually that will catch up with the program and expose the lack of depth in the Canadian men's player pool, right? That's an interesting question. I think it's easy to say this, I understand. And I know we were hyping up this group as as much as we were, but even if they were playing well, I'd say this. We're talking about 16, 17, and 18-year-old kids for the most part here, right? Some of them haven't even made their professional debuts yet, mainly the European-based guys, Justin Smith aside. And you're playing in a tournament in Honduras where it's been constantly raining, the pitches are heavy. Yes, it works that way for both teams. But when you are at that age, players develop at different speeds and in different circumstances, I think if one or two players struggle in the odd game, that doesn't mean we've overrated them. That doesn't mean we've underrated them and vice versa if they were playing well, right? It doesn't mean that we were right. A lot of things can still happen. So what I would say is the fact that they don't look too cohesive yet is a concern in terms of the actual tournament, in terms of Canada qualifying for either of the under 20 World Cup or the Olympics, But when it comes to the players themselves, what matters is how they're progressing at the club level, because that is ultimately who is responsible with their development. And as long as things are going well there and they're progressing well, I think that's what matters here. Because keep in mind, too, a lot of these players are probably not going to feature until maybe the latter half of the 2026 cycle. So there's still a couple more years left until I think they're not even fully ripe, but starting to get there where they can begin to contribute at the senior level. Mike Lafarbe, uh, with the rise in League One, CPL, or even MLS Next Pro, should the CSA schedule friendlies for our youth national teams, U20, U23, against these teams, along with more camps, a cheaper alternative than friendlies against other nations? This tournament is showing how badly we need more camps. Edward Honsing Wong, uh, purely from a player development perspective, were we better off having some of our U20 stay with the club sites, thinking TFC in particular, or would it have been better if the U20s, or would it have been better if they were at the U20 tournament? Did the U.S. also have the same issue? I think the U.S. just simply put, they have a, I think a weird mixture of players, um, where some of these guys have only really played together a few times, and I think you saw that in, in parts. Um, and I think that some of them are also a little rusty too. And I think that's the case with some of the Canadian players, but I think in terms of the actual squad, maybe apart from one or two of the guys who are playing professionally in Europe, I'm looking mainly at a guy like, um, like Georgi Atanasov. 
I don't really know if they could have gone with any other direction because most of these players were there in April and played together. So really on the surface, Biello and the coaching staff did the right thing here picking these players because there was supposed to be some familiarity there. But clearly there's not enough because they played two games in April against the same opponent and those are the only two times they played together before the tournament even started. And yeah, some of these guys played together at club level, like Ben Alexander and Matteo Campagna in Vancouver, all the Montreal guys, of course. But it's a lot different when you're doing it for a different coach with different teammates around you. So I think if they had had, let's say, the January camp and then let's say an April camp, would that have benefited them a bit more to get four games under their belt over the course of three, four months? Probably, Yes. Dan Clark, what are your opinions on the Campio players versus the MLS and European Academy players? Does the professional environment the Campio players are in give them an advantage in these types of youth tournaments? Yeah, that's the interesting thing here. Because after April, I was informed that the MLS and CPL players seem to be more prepared for the level, I'm talking in general, um, of the under-20s than the European guys. And I think that makes sense because a lot of the CPL and MLS guys are playing professionally. So, and, and I think you see that at times with, for example, Lowell Wright. I mean, that goal he scored yesterday, that's probably a benefit of playing against grown men every week and that he can outmuscle these under 20 defenders with relative ease. He can anticipate where they're going to be challenging him at. He can use his very good close control to get around them. And also the same thing with guys like Justin Smith, who very clearly is composed under pressure, whereas a guy like Jamie Knight LaBelle is flustered when he is pressed and he's on the ball. Now that's going to, I think, get eradicated with time because remember, he's 17 years old and literally just made the step up to Bristol City's developmental under 23 squad. It was already a pretty big step up for him to make going from the under, I believe it was the under 18s before, to the under 23s. Now he's starting for Canada at what is essentially a do or die tournament to get to the under 20 World Cup and the Olympics. So again, you kind of have to look at it with context in a way, but certainly that is the consensus, right? Really, Justin Smith aside, the other European-based players I think it took them that Cuba game to kind of get their feet wet and get used to the pace of play against the U.S. in general, maybe Knight LaBelle aside. I thought they actually handled themselves decently well. Um, So we'll see now if this St. Kitts game kind of gets them their confidence back. And then when they start the round of 16 against, again, another quality opponent, whether that's Honduras or Costa Rica, um, if that maybe gets them on the right track here. But even even the under um, even the MLS and CPL guys at times have had their struggles too. Um, they've been playing very conservatively, which I find very strange. There have been times when Kwasi Poku has had acres of space to run into, or he can beat his man for pace and just chooses to stop and then pass it back. When you can very clearly catch a team on the counter, little things like that have been kind of hurting them as well, which has then led to transitions the other way. And Kelly, I'm guessing it could be fixture conjunction, but any idea why Canada isn't pressing more? We don't have a ton of technical skill at number 10. And similarly out wide, our midfielder is 688, which lends itself into a pressing style. The fixture construction that Shane talks about is uh, two uh, days in between games. Yeah, they're playing every other day, basically. So I think that's certainly part of it, 100%, because even... 
Cuba when they were oppressing Canada. They did it selectively. And to Canada's credit against the U.S., they were putting a little bit of pressure here and there. But I think that's largely what it comes down to. Because I think that in a normal setting, even if they were playing every three or four days, I think you'd see Canada pressing a little more aggressively. Because as as the question points out there, they do have the personnel to be able to do it, win possession back quickly, get it forward as quickly as possible, and then try to pounce on the counter through the wings, which is where I think their strengths in general probably lie more so than centrally when it comes to creativity. Rude, Trude, where is the support for our ball carriers? Ostakio always provides a passing option on the Canadian senior national team. Why isn't this happening for the Canaman T20? Well, it's hard to find a player of Stachio's uh, caliber uh, on the youth level. Yeah, it's true. Justin Smith is doing that role, I think, as best as he can. But there are still times when, and I know we're probably going to get into this a little bit with the next question, but there are times when Canada just isn't giving each other options to, to provide an outlet pass. And it's very simple stuff. And that's what makes them so easy to, to play against when it comes to pressing them high. Because if that line of engagement is flustering the center backs to the point where they're hitting it long or they're committing a mistake and then a turnover happens, then teams are going to hone in on that, right? And the best way to do that is by giving yourself a wide outlet, by creating those triangles. And you need midfielders to do that because you have the fullbacks out wide that you can pass to, but then you need to have someone in front of you as well to kind of draw one of the players or at least keep them honest a little bit. Like, okay, do I press the center back or do I kind of mark his outlet? Like then it gives you many, many possibilities to play out from the back. So Smith is trying to occupy that role as best as he can. The problem is if he's the only guy doing it, guess what? He's easy to mark. And that's when sometimes he gets himself in a bit of trouble. The few times he's gotten himself into trouble is when there've been two guys around him and they can very easily just knock him off the ball. And then thanks to CONCACAF officiating, <laughs> he he doesn't get the foul that he maybe expects to get. And then there's a chance the other way. Chris talks. Herman has recently been stubborn with playing out the back through the center backs. Bielo has been stubborn this way since Olympic qualifying, developing one system through all programs is important long-term. But when so much is on the line, it's dangerous. Should we be concerned? I know a lot of has to be said uh, how obviously Canada failed to qualify to the Olympics uh, when they played uh, March of last year. Um, but how much does that fall on Bielo? Uh, because as much as we like to think that he is an upgrade on Oliveri, Bielo still has much to prove uh, on the youth on the youth side. Well, yeah, and that, that isn't Biello's style, really. Like, look at his Montreal teams, right? They were very much built on just being organized, striking on set pieces, um, but conceding a lot of set pieces on the other side, and j just generally being a, a very difficult team to decipher. And I guess in tournament soccer, that's a benefit, because if you're trying to grind out results, that works. But when you've given up nearly four total expected goals in your two games and you've only put up one total expected goal basically through two games, then it's not working out. I admire the fact that 
the Federation maybe wants the senior team all the way down to, you know, the U15s to play the same style. I think that that is actually quite good. It's beneficial because then if you have players playing at any of those levels and they come into the senior team, they're already used to the tactical framework. I think it helps a lot, but you also have to have the players to be able to play the system. Right. And I think the likes of Campania and Poku and Keyshawn Ferdinand can eventually get to that point where they're comfortable in possession under pressure. But right now, I don't think they have it. And when you look at how Canada plays from the back right now, a very simple tweak they could do just at this tournament is you have Knight LaBelle and you have Campania as your center backs. You have Justin Smith drop in between them and essentially be the main guy who carries the ball out from the defensive third and provides that first outlet pass because he very clearly handles himself well under pressure. He can help you bypass that line of engagement and then get you playing the other way. Now, in order to do that successfully, you need to have dynamic off the ball movement and Canada's lacking that right now, which is very shocking and I think is contributing to a lot of their problems, both on and off the ball, because guess what? If you're not moving and you turn over the ball and your lines are disjointed and there are players sitting in between the pockets between, say, the midfield and the defense, then you're going to be very easy to counter against and you're going to get torn apart. So you're not only hurting yourself offensively, you're hurting yourself defensively by not being able to set up properly when you're building up from the back. Should they do it? That's maybe a debate a lot of fans would like to have. But there is one very simple tweak, and that is just to have Justin Smith join the back three, give that line of engagement a little bit of time for pause to see what they want to do, keep your wingbacks in Franklin and Poker or whoever they are wide to give you give you the wide ball and then just have everybody drop deep a little bit. And then when you play quickly, you just spring forward. Like th- these are things that I think extra camps would really help with, but it's also a pretty simple solution just to have Smith drop in. Tenement T fan. What do you think of our center backs so far? Would it be better to play with these three midfielders instead of two to help the passing game? Well, they have played with three midfielders. Um, in both of the games at times. It just depends on the situation. Um, but that might help. But again, you, you have to be dynamic, right? Like it doesn't, you could have five midfielders in there. If no one's moving or showing for the ball and, and, and helping you connect and, and, and trying to bypass a high press, then there's really no point, no matter how many players you have. Vince Alvarado at Vince by demand. Who have you been impressed by? Who's disappointed? We're going to talk about him in a bit, but Justin Smith for sure has impressed me. Hat tip as well to Ben Alexander, who I thought has been really sure-handed and commanding in his area. I thought he's been very, very good. The fact that he has been beaten by two unstoppable goals from the U.S. and then a turnover from Jamie Knight LaBelle, which was just a clear-cut chance for Martin to score for Cuba, that kind of speaks to how well he has played because he's already saved about one goal above expected. So he's kind of kept Canada alive in both of their games and have kind of kept them within, I guess, within distance, certainly in the case of Cuba, and then kept them in a game to get a result against the U.S. already. Those would be the two that would come to mind. I was very impressed with Campania's progressive passing in the first game. Not so much in the second game, but he was under pressure a bit more. He clearly has a lot of work to do there. Um, 
I thought Catavolo had flashes, but again, when your teammates aren't moving for you, sometimes it's hard to set up chances. And in terms of disappointing, um, Jesse Costa and Noah Batne had pretty anonymous games, although the ball didn't really get to them as much. I thought that Canada was quite left side heavy. Um, so they didn't maybe get all the chances they could have, but when they did get the ball, didn't really do much with it. And then were obviously eventually taken off pretty early in that Cuba game. Knight LaBelle has been up and down again. He's 17 years old and has a lot of room for growth. And I think defensively, he's been pretty good when the game's in front of him. Um, but on the ball under pressure and in transition, maybe still has a little bit of work to do in that regard. Jordan SC, how fast can we petition for Justin Smith to get on the national team? Andrew Thompson, is Justin Smith the second coming of Stephen Victoria? Borgon's pants, Smith looks like a cut above for Canada. Do you think he's close to the senior side if he gets some minutes with Nice this season? And Michael Farb, good start to his season with a breakthrough at Nice. Justin Smith has a, has a legit shot of being on the plane to Qatar, doesn't he? Yeah, see, that is the key. If he cracks Nice's first team, which he did at times last year, to be fair to him, but if he's playing semi-regularly, we know how much John Herdman loves seeing Canadian players playing in tier one leagues. And the fact that he can play as a six and as a center back might actually help his case. I'd say he has an outside shot. I don't think he gets in because I just think there's a little too much depth in front of him at this point in time but he'll certainly make an argument for himself to be on the plane if he is playing in Liga and does pretty well while doing so. Keep in mind, too, he's 18, 19 years old, so there's still a lot of development for him to go through between now and even a few years from now. Chris talks again, asking about Justin Smith. Uh, second on the depth chart behind Piet for Kennedy team, natural midfield, six destroyer. I know this is an overreaction, but perhaps it is not as I'm not even sure of Piet's natural replacements. It's a very good question because when you look at just natural destroyers in that number six role, there aren't very many that come to mind because there are guys you can play number six. Yes. Like Liam Fraser, like Stefan Estacchio, et cetera, but they're not in that same mold as a Piet. I would even say that Smith Calling him a destroyer, I think, would also be doing him a bit of a disservice, but he can do the role better than the other two can, for sure. Um, yeah, he could play himself into being the number two there, to be honest, because Piet's really the only guy that I can think of off the top of my head that can actually fulfill that role on a regular basis. Um, just trying to think if, if there are any players kind of on the, 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 the fringes of the national team who can do it, and, and most of them are really good orchestrators in possession who have decent defensive characteristics for sure. But as a pure, you know, ball seeking, destroying number six, I don't think there's anybody else besides Piet. And I guess Smith by extension can fulfill that role while giving you a little bit extra on the ball. Mark Cavajo, uh, do you see Justin Smith's future for the senior team as a midfielder or as a center back? That is a really good question. Because at Nice, he's been predominantly a midfielder. But you can see why he would be a very good center back in the future. Um, he has the height. He has the physicality. He has the composure and the poise on the ball. Defensively, he's very good. Times his challenge as well. 
I would say that his future for the national team is probably at center back, but he can play number six in a pinch and that's good. That's that's a great problem to have. If you can have a guy who can fulfill two roles, all the more reason to call him up. But if I were to pick one of the two, I'd probably see him fitting in more as a center back in the future than a midfielder at the national team level. Andrew Thompson, will Ben Alexander's lack of foot pass pose a threat to a ceiling with the Canadian national men's team? Well, I mean, look, I mean, Maxim Kropo, he's not wearing any sweatpants and, and his uh, his stock hasn't uh, dropped under John Herm's eyes. That's true. Yeah. I mean, look, again, Alexander has been really good at the tournament so far, to be honest. And it was a little bit of a surprise that he got in and Max Anker didn't. I guess the Whitecaps wanted to keep him around um, just to get him some minutes. Although you would argue that he probably could have started had he gone to the CONCACAF U20s. But Alexander's stepped up, taken the number one job, has done very well for himself and all the power to him. Because again, he hasn't put a foot wrong so far. The three goals he's conceded, not at all his fault. And I thought he's he's been very commanding in his area, confident on crosses, um, has timed coming out very well. And he's met every challenge so far. Jordan SC, is Cuba a better team than we thought? This is a team with only one MLS player and the rest playing uh, in their domestic league. I think a lot of us were surprised. Do, do you think uh, that Cuba was a better team and that the team didn't really prepare enough, that study them enough uh, as they should have? I think Cuba, in, in terms of being a pushover, no. I, I think that is probably the one way that they were underestimated in that they can cause you problems. But in terms of the actual quality of the team, I'm not so sure because Canada did make it pretty easy for Cuba to to obviously counter against them, to get chances, um, didn't really test. I mean, they did not test a literal outfield player in goal for the 15 minutes he was in there, which is absolutely crazy because he's about five foot two. Like you put any shot in the upper 90 and it's probably going in and they couldn't do it. So I think it's a little bit of both in that I think maybe they were underestimated a little bit in terms of whether they could kind of cause Canada problems off the ball, at least just by being disciplined defensively. But the overall quality, you know, I, I think it's a team that's okay at best and really nothing more than that. North fan Steve, why not play more of these Nations League and youth matches at neutral sites in, for example, Florida? The field conditions in Honduras are horrible. Well, let me tell you something. My colleagues in Honduras were even surprised themselves that Honduras was getting this U20 youth championship. Uh, that just goes to show that not even them uh, believe in the conditions uh, of the fields themselves. Yeah, that's usually where they play the games anyway, is in the U.S., um, especially in Bradenton where the IMG Academy is, where they have all the pitches. It's a very pretty, solid facility. Yeah, and they're, and they're pristine pitches, exactly. So, I mean, Canada also played early round qualifiers there uh, in March. So they're very clearly um, sufficient enough. Why they put it in Honduras, I don't know. Maybe that's just to, I don't know, toss the Federation a bone or something. But, man, if it's raining as much as it is and the pitches already aren't the best quality – not the best idea to put it there. Someone who uh, actually was going to miss the U20 game against Cuba if it hadn't been postponed, it, it does have its uh, its pros and cons for sure. Um, final question on the U20 section. How do we watch these games and why is it so difficult to find them televised anywhere? 
Um, you can watch you can watch it on One Soccer's YouTube channel. Uh, it's actually open to anyone to watch. And on the televised, um, well, actually, I don't I don't think most most U twenty youth tournaments are not really televised uh, anywhere. I remember one. I mean, South America. Whenever a national team would go to the Toulon tournament, unless it was something like that, you know, not not these games are not mostly found on national television anywhere, not even alone Canada. Yeah. And even in South America, when the under twenties are happening there, um, they're not on the big networks in South America that often they're maybe streamed on their websites, um, or maybe on like a secondary channel or something like that, but they're not usually that heavily televised. The under 20 world cup. Yes. You do see it on more channels, but the regional qualifying tournaments, no. On to domestic matters, shall we? Beginning with the Canadian Championship. The semifinals will be played Wednesday nights, beginning with Toronto FC hosting CF Montreal and the Vancouver Whitecaps welcoming York United. Uh, only a one-match leg uh, winner uh, advances to the final. Uh, anything you're watching for specifically in either game and predictions on who will play the final? Montreal, which I think we're going to discuss in the next section, they very clearly rotated um over the weekend against Austin and Kamal Miller was injured he suffered a I believe it was a foot injury maybe an ankle injury uh, in Honduras so really just a couple of questions related to that is how strong of a team is Nancy going to put out against Toronto you imagine he's going to change a pretty decent chunk of that 11 to go for the win here because there's a final on the line if you win and for TFC it's just can you stop conceding goals? <laughs> They've, I, I think it's over 20 straight games now without a clean sheet. And the fact that Montreal are so lethal on the counter, especially, especially on the wings, um, which Toronto doesn't really do a good job of covering, that's going to be something to watch in terms of how many chances are Montreal going to get on the counter. And then when you look at the York and Vancouver games, or the York and Vancouver game, Vancouver's going for this. You can very clearly see it. They've been doing so since they started the tournament. They want to take no chances. They've been naming strong 11s through every game so far. I imagine that continues here. They got a very professional win over Dallas over the weekend. And to be honest, I could see Vanny Sartini making very few changes for that game against York. And York is going to be a little shorthanded just because of, you know, the fact they're not going to have Lowell right there, although they have a plethora of strikers available to them anyways should be an interesting match for sure especially considering that vancouver has in their last few games won by just being disciplined defensively off the ball and then being able to counter you wonder how many opportunities they're going to get in this game well it is interesting because it is uh Abzi's final game uh, uh in canada right. uh, yep. before uh, going over to france for po uh, fc and of course, uh, Montreal and Toronto are, are facing two different realities, um, but it is always uh, great to see when uh, those two play as it is a derby match. In MLS, uh, the Whitecaps were the only team who won uh, in play over the weekend. 2-0 over FC Dallas. Lucas Cavallini scored again. Deber Casado added the second. And Andres Cubas, yes. uh, the designated player, uh, Argentinian nationalist Paraguayan, uh, looked solid in the midfield. Uh, is it coming together finally? Sure looks like it. Gubas seemed to be the last piece of the puzzle. Um, for the first time in a while, that midfield did not look easy to play through. 
So Kubas is already doing his job. He was signed to to be a ball winning midfielder and kind of help, you know, break up plays and then get the ball to a difference maker. That's exactly what he did. Ryan Gold's getting fit again. Uh, Lucas Cavallini scoring all of a sudden. I think he's up to over 0.4 expected goals per 90, which is the highest he's registered since signing with the Whitecaps. And it's leading to goal scoring. Um, the fact that he's fit and confident is good news, not just for the Whitecaps, but also the national team, because then it puts pressure on the other strikers who deliver. Because suddenly, David and Laren have gone from the undisputed starters to... Oh my God, Ike Ugbo finished the season really strongly in France. Lucas Cavallini is scoring now for fun in, in MLS. We got to make sure we start the European season strongly. Otherwise, I don't think they'll get dropped outright, but at the very least, the, the, the leash will be a little shorter. Of course, CF Montreal lost 1-0 uh, to Austin FC despite 10 men. Despite facing 10 men for an entire half, uh, it, was a rot- it was a rotated side. Do you read anything into it? Not really, other than the fact Montreal couldn't couldn't really break down Austin despite having that man advantage for basically 45 minutes is a little concerning. But again, a rotated side, they were dealing with a couple injuries and I, I think that was bound to happen. They were probably going to slip up in this game. And Austin's a solid team. Like that's, that's the thing people kind of forget. They're near the top of the Western conference. They have a pretty decent defensive record too. Um, you just kind of chalk it up as one of those games. If it continues with a stronger 11 in the next couple of weeks, then you maybe start to think, all right, is the wind getting taken out of their sails now? But for now, really nothing to read into. Finally, Toronto FC lost again, this time at two nothing to the New York Red Bulls. That's TFC's 16th straight MLS away game without a victory and a club record 23 straight league games without a clean sheet. Uh, Mike Lafarbe, the signs insignia, Crisito, and Hoylet, last two rumors. Any other TFC rumors for this summer window? Personally, I would like to see them get Henry uh, with their need at center back and Hoylet coming home uh, is any reports out of England are saying that he wants to play closer to home, even if TFC don't sign him. So he is considering a second MLS team. I know it's been a while, but Daniel Henry at TFC, you know, I think it would be good, especially uh, how TFC are right now. I mean, the, they could give him another chance. Uh, and Henry needs minutes ahead of the World Cup, doesn't he? He does. I'm just not sure if he's capable of playing in that high line. And that's the same reason I would have pause for Stephen Vittoria signing for Toronto FC. I'm just not sure if they're conducive to, to playing in that system at all. Hoylet would be an interesting one because... When you look at the future here, Alejandro Pozuelo's contract is expiring at the end of the season. He is going to be 31 by that point. He has, I think he missed what, half the season last year due to injury. Might've been in 2020, if I'm, if, unless memory is, is foggy here. I know the pandemic has kind of ruined my timing, but um, he's on the wrong side of 30. He's had injury problems. And TFC, by all accounts, were kind of looking at trying to get him out before the season started, but I guess nothing formulated. And he doesn't really have a, a clear fit in Bradley's system. Whether Bradley wants to play 3-4-3 or 3-5-2 or 4-3-3, there's really no room for a playmaking number 10 to be in that system. Putting Pozuelo on the wing doesn't really get the most out of him. And he thrived before this season in a freer role, whereas now he's 
pretty much just kind of stuck to the right flank, occasionally drifting inside, and he's had less influence on things. So that's going to be a real interesting talking point here, because if they bring in Hoylet, Insignia comes in, um, they're going to already have three DP spots full. If you let Botswana walk, you can use that to, I think, sign a really, really good midfielder, which I think that team desperately needs. Um, because Bradley's getting up there in age. He's slowing down. He can still be a decent contributor. Osorio, still very solid, still in his prime, but needs help. And the young guys just aren't quite there in their development yet, I think, to influence things now. It really just depends on the patience of the club, of Bob Bradley, um, and whether they want to fast-track this thing. Because for years, we've been saying, play the kids. They're playing the kids, and results aren't going their way. But I do think it has a little more to do with just the lack of you know, experience in the team, I, I I think it's it's really a mixture of everything. I think tactically things just aren't really gelling right now. And the fact that they have young players out there um, is maybe a, a bit of a convenient excuse. Finally, on domestic matters, we had three CPL games over the weekend. York and Pacific played to a scoreless draw, nil-nil. Forge defeated a 10-man Halifax Wander side 3-0. And a couple weeks back, they defeated them 4-0 uh, also in Halifax. Uh, and FC Edmonton got their first win of the season uh, over Athletic Ottawa. Uh, which story of these uh, do you like the best? I, I have to think it's going to be uh, Alan Koch finally getting three points, huh? 100%. And like that team's just been through the ringer. They've actually done not too badly in a few games this season. They've deserved to, to get a few more points than I think they've gotten already. Um, maybe this will help them. I mean, it's it's a really weird mixture of like CPL loan players and then like guys who, you know, are maybe kind of trying to just to find a club for the next year or so. And, and they're in a very tough position. So the fact that they've now gotten a win, I think is is going to be a breath of fresh air. You just hope that situation gets resolved soon because man, FC Edmonton is becoming an afterthought, not just in the CPL, but in that market as they probably have been for the last few years. For sure, it doesn't help when uh, the league is is not only your owner, but you have uh, 700 fans going to the games and you have the youngest team, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, Chris talks, what is next for Bobby Smirnotis after all his, all his success? No MLS team, especially Canada, has shown interest. MLS Next Pro or Obscure European League, in my opinion, Herman and Ancelotti, he is someone who should be considered for Canada and T. Bobby should be looking after our U20s right now. Uh, well, Bobby actually has had MLS interests uh, in the past. He's had actually a couple of conversations in the offseason. Uh, didn't have working in the past. Of course, he was uh, part of a list of candidates uh, for a couple of MLS teams. But, of course, he didn't make it to the final interview process, as tends to happen. Uh, but it is actually a very good point, considering he has developed uh, much of the important players uh, in the senior side. Uh, where would you like to see uh, Bobby uh, Peter? You know, maybe uh, in MLS. We know that he has uh, European passports uh, through his Greek roots, so uh, there is that alternative uh, route. Yeah, selfishly, I would love to see him join the under twenty coaching staff, or like just kind of lead the under twenty team in that way. I don't know if Smirniotis would want to do that. I think he very clearly has other ambitions in terms of going to Europe, testing himself against the best. And, you know, when we had him on the show a few months back, as we were kind of looking ahead to the Champions League and stuff, we asked him a couple questions related to, like, what are you looking forward to the most 
coaching in the Champions League and like, what are you looking forward to the most over the next few years here? And he was just talking about all the the lessons he was going to learn tactically and, you know, growing as a coach and this and that. So that kind of leads me to believe he might want to continue his club career elsewhere, whether that's in MLS Next Pro, um, in MLS if he gets that chance, or overseas, which he has the opportunity to do, as you said. Of course, uh, we still have yet to see a Canadian coach from the CPL to make its move over uh, seas or even down south to the U.S. Uh, a couple of players have already done that, but not yet a coach. So hoping to see that uh, happen uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, news and notes, Vancouver and Toronto were officially named host cities for the 2026 World Cup. Edmonton, as we expected, is left out. Uh, no surprises. Any reaction now that the news is official? Um, I can tell you right now, not not in the Canadian front, but on the U.S. side, very surprised that that Washington D.C. got uh, uh, got left out. I mean, it is the the capital of the U.S. Yeah, it, it's kind of surprising in a lot of ways, um, especially because Kansas City got in. I wonder if that's because Edmonton bowed out, so they're like, "Hey, put it in Kansas City, where you know there's pretty good soccer support." But not having D.C. in there is definitely weird. Um, from a Canadian perspective. Vancouver's going to be a pretty big player in this thing. It looks like they're probably going to have the World Cup draw in Vancouver. Um, They're slated to get, I think Dan Riccio um, of Sportsnet 650 reported this. They're going to get six games at the World Cup. Um, So there's your sweeteners that they were kind of promised to re-enter the selection process. And you know what? It makes a lot of sense. It's a world-class city. It's a scenic city. It's a beautiful city. I know people in Toronto won't be happy, but... You know, they have the capacity to host some pretty decent games. They, they might be able to even get a quarterfinal. I know you need 60,000 seats or more to do that, but maybe, again, that could be another sweetener. And considering the, the province and the city is going to be spending, I think it's like upwards of $240 million to host these games, you better hope they get some bang for their buck because then in 2030, they're going to be hosting the Olympics, or at least they're trying to, to you know, get in there and host the Olympics. So they're going to have to pay for quite a bit of things here over the next, what, eight years. Another thing that I got uh, from that announcement uh, was uh, Victor Monteglani. He was there, of course, as CONCAF president and FIFA vice president, someone who leaded the 2026 bid before he took over that CONCAF job. Uh, in an interview with uh, Christian Jack on One Soccer, he actually said that it looks like Canada will be playing a friendly in Qatar prior to the World Cup. So that is that against the World Cup team. So that's uh, that's great to see. Um, looks like we'll have to extend our trip, uh, Peter, uh, to Doha, maybe two weeks, change it to three weeks. Uh, yep, we'll there see. you go. Um, the, the Canadian women's team, as I said, on the top takes from South Korea, Bima Field this Sunday. Obviously, a, a pregame, a tuna batch uh, for the CONCAF W Championship. Uh, anything you'll be watching out for specifically? You know, it's it's just very simply put, prep for the W Championship, prep for the Women's World Cup. It's a, it's a strong team. The, the one angle I would look at with this is, uh, the one angle I would look at with this is, when you look at how Evelyn VN is doing in Sweden, she's on an absolute tear, which I kind of expected to happen a few weeks ago. I remember we were talking about how, you know, her underlying numbers were really positive and, uh, you know, it was only a matter of time until she would end up, you know, hitting a really hot run of form and that's happening, right? She can't stop scoring. So I would love to see her get a start here 
and kind of show what she can do because she has 13 caps, yes, but I feel like it's also coincided with maybe times when her form is starting to take a turn for the worst, whereas now she's in really hot form. So I'd love to see what she can do with uh, a start here and, and see if she can kind of carry it forward. Uh, and finally, to close up the show, Victor Loturi was officially sold to Ross County in the Scottish Premiership. Um, our own Thomas Neff uh, is hearing that they are on the verge of signing a second Canadian from the CPL. So stay tuned for that. That's actually a done deal, just pending the visa issues and all that good stuff. So we shall potentially see another Canadian at Ross County in the Premiership of Scotland. That is going to do it for us this week. <coughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. For Thomas Neff, as well as the absent Alexander Gongay-Ruzik, I am Peter Galindo. We will see you at the same time, same place next week. Up the NFP. <laughs>